This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, in most nations in Africa, queer sex is against the law. We'll talk with someone who wrote the book on the subject. Blackness is seen differently in the United States than in Latin America. But as our guest explains, Blacks are at the bottom of the hierarchy in both cultures. And Mumia Abu-Jamal has some thoughts on the election. But first, ever since the Black Rebellion in Ferguson, Missouri, the age-old debate over revolution versus reform has been raging once again. Dylan Rodriguez is professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California at Riverside. Rodriguez says reformism is just another form of counterinsurgency. I advise everybody who hears us and everybody who reads us to go to the Internet and do your free online download of the U.S. Army's counterinsurgency field manual. Petraeus kind of rewrote it and republished it around 2006, 2007. It's a free PDF download. Read that thing. That thing was written to kind of guide the operations in Afghanistan in particular, in the so-called war on terror more generally. But if you read the guidelines for what counterinsurgency is, which is what it's about, it's about squashing so-called foreign powers on the ground, grassroots, organizing, struggle, and so forth and so on. And this is across political ideology. Like the, the counterinsurgency manual does not care if you are a right-wing fundamentalist or a left-wing feminist, trans, queer, black abolition. They don't care, right? They just want to squash the uprising. If you read the counterinsurgency manual, it is very clear that what the U.S. state understands about freedom struggle and about radical forms of rebellion in particular is that you have to capture the imagination. And by capture, I don't mean it in a good way. I'm saying encircle. They, they want to entrap and contain the political and social imagination of the people who are actually and potentially engaged in the uprising. So domestically, the rulers yeah. would like to trap and contain people who want change in a whole web of body cameras and community policing and such. That's right. And that's at best. In many cases, what becomes the premise of the conversation in the domestic context is the existence of the police itself. So that is the ultimate form of counterinsurgency when you don't even have to argue, when you don't even have to confront or challenge the presence of the very same apparatus that is engaged in war, in in asymmetrical warfare, right? Because that's what we've seen in the last eight to 10 years, is you have folks, particularly black folks, that are exposing how it is that for time immemorial, the presence of the police has constituted asymmetrical warfare against black people, black neighborhoods, black people. And what that's done is it's forced all of the other elements of the state, all the other elements of the larger society to step up and figure out what is the best way to defend the presence of the police, knowing, knowing that it has now been exposed as an asymmetrical war-making apparatus against specific populations, specifically black people. So what we see as counterinsurgency then 
are a bunch of measures that are militantly undertaken that all presume the continued existence of the police, whether it's body cameras, whether it's trainings, whether it's different forms of diversity for, you know, bringing more black and brown people into police personnel and whatnot. That is the definition of counterinsurgency, and it's not new. It's as old as neocolonialism is old. In your article for The Level, which we reproduced in Black Agenda Report, you did single out some organizations, including Campaign Zero, which emerged from the first phase of the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, eight can't wait. A Can't Wait is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. It's a glossy social media presence that does not have a significant or really any grassroots foundation to it. So it's created really by a combination of nonprofit philanthropic funding. It is literally an invention of the nonprofit industrial complex, which then makes you raise the question as to what the parameters of organizing and thought would be for such an organization, right? And what it is, is it, it, it's skillful. And this, this is how we have to identify how counterinsurgency in this kind of so-called soft phase is working right now. It's slick because you have really charismatic and eloquent spokespeople and they look the part and they talk the part and they're militant as hell. They're not willing to take from anybody, right? But at the same time, the things they're actually proposing have to do with reinforcing and reproducing a reformist agenda under the rhetorical guise of being militant and something beyond that, right? So it is a militant advocacy for a reformist agenda. So you're going to tell me that your response to people in the streets insurging against anti-black policing, against the killing of black people, this asymmetrical war that we've been in ever since modernity, ever since the plantation was nominally abolished, right? And the rise of police happened. It's been an asymmetrical war against black folks. You can tell me that A can't wait and that organization, their response is going to be that one of their proposals should be, yeah, you should warn people before you shoot them. That is literally one of the proposals under the A can't wait proposal this, or that this organization is putting out. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And you're telling me that we're not going to laugh at that and tell them, get that crap out of here? This is what I'm talking about. This is the problem, is that there's such a powerful set of assumptions that are guiding so much political work right now that we have to challenge it front and center. We have to call it out and say, this is a reformist agenda. We are in an abolitionist moment, Glenn, and that's what we cannot waste. We cannot afford to waste the fact that people are willing to think and listen and talk abolition right now. And I'm talking abolition in a black radical tradition. They're willing to do that right now. We cannot sell that out to all these folks, no matter how slick, no matter how charismatic they are, who are going to push a reformist line. We can't do that. The reformists say, and they've always said, that abolitionists and folks like that only offer an all-or-nothing choice for the people. Yeah, well, that to me is a disrespectful statement. What that means is that you haven't read a single word, you haven't engaged in a single conversation, you have not sung a single song that is connected to the abolitionist tradition. What that statement assumes is that abolition is some kind of a platform or some kind of an agenda, which, which it's not. Now, you can turn it into one at strategic moments. Abolition is not that. Abolition is a long historical practice. If you want, what we can say is that the very making of insurgent, self-determined maroon communities, for example, people who escaped and stole themselves and ran from slavery, ran from the plantation, right? That's an abolitionist practice. That is an abolitionist creation in and of itself. And when folks would steal themselves, that was abolitionist in and of itself. There was no somewhere else. There was no something down the line. It was about what they were doing in the moment. If we understand that to be what abolition actually is, that abolition is an everyday practice, 
I've been saying this, Glenn, now to everybody that I've talked to since June. Folks that are starting to get familiar and starting to get what, what you might call abolition-friendly or abolition-curious, right? They want to talk about it. The problem is that folks think abolition is some kind of destination, objective, or outcome. It is not. Abolition is not an outcome. Abolition is not a destination. Abolition is an everyday practice of creativity, of community. Ruthie Gilmore, my, one of my teachers, talks about it as making things. Abolition is a method of living everyday life and community building and of organizing. So it is already embedded in what we do now. So in that sense, it's less scary, right? It's also an analytical framework. If you take on abolition as an everyday practice, what it's like is it's a lens that allows you to see critically and to see more deeply and historically what is going on around you and what it is that people are speaking from when they propose certain kinds of policy reform or police training or whatever it might be. Now you have the tools, you have abolitionist analytical tools to break that stuff down and to start thinking about other ways to approach what is in front of you. And I'm talking about immediate sense. Now we can actually engage in casualty management against genocide in ways that don't reinforce the system itself. That's what I'm talking about. So abolition is not an outcome. It's an everyday practice. It's a way of being with each other. It's a community. It's a, it's a form of community. Before abolition was the watchword, some of us used the rule of thumb that those proposals or those demands that actually strengthen the actual power of the people and weaken the hand of the oppressor are potentially transformative and good things, while those demands that paper over the contradiction have to be opposed because they're illusionary and demobilizing. That's right. This is part of what I'm saying. If, if we carry an abolitionist framework grounded in a black radical and black revolutionary tradition in particular, right? If we carry an abolitionist analytical framework to the table, when we start considering different approaches to reform, we can build that fluency among different communities, among different organizations, that can scrutinize a particular reform proposal and begin to anticipate and understand whether it will unilaterally reproduce the very system that we are trying to resist, challenge, and survive, or whether it can be manipulated in such a way that that particular short-term reform, number one, serves as a casualty management measure, that it helps prevent some people from getting sick and from dying, or maybe they'll decarcerate people, get them out of jail and prison, detention center, whatever it might be, right? That's A. That's A number one. And then secondly is what you just said. Does this reform proposal foreclose further opportunities to build and struggle toward an abolition and transformation of these violent, anti-black, racist, colonial systems? Or do they actually allow people a little bit more wiggle room to live and to breathe and to organize in such a way that they can continue the work of abolitionist struggle? Can I give you a quick example, Glenn? Sure. So in California, there's a proposition right now to end cash bail. As all of us know, cash bail is a long-running, basically it's a, it's a form of incarceration that targets poor people, black people, undocumented people, and so forth. In order to get bail on pending criminal charges, you have to pay your way out. So there's a proposal to end cash bail. On immediate scrutiny, it sounds like it's a no-brainer. Of course I'm going to support this proposition. Now here's the problem. If you have a good critical abolitionist analysis of the proposition itself, you will immediately see that there's a built-in poison, a built-in toxicity to this proposal. What they're proposing is to abolish cash bail by installing a set of racist, classist, anti-black algorithms that will judge and give district attorneys the power to judge whether a person actually should be released or not. So what you're doing is you're replacing cash bail with an anti-black and racist algorithm. 
So no. So the answer is no, you cannot support that, right? Because first of all, it's not rational. It's not even a rational trade-off. But ethically, what you're doing by ending cash bail is you're actually leaving a bunch of people exposed. And we should be able to anticipate that they're going to be the poorest and the blackest people that are being held pending bail are going to be the ones that are targeted for continued incarceration, and they will not be released because the algorithm will identify them. Some of us are critical of Black Lives Matter, at least some chapters of Black Lives Matter, that advocate defunding the police, but don't support actively community control of police, and basically would leave the defunding of police up to city councils, the same people that protect and pay the police, without demanding that these social services, for example, that would be deployed instead of the police in some circumstances, also be controlled by the community. The underlying assumption here is that the city councils that would carry out the defunding are somehow on the people's side. This is part of the problem of the reliance on already existing state and state-friendly apparatuses and organizations that are also already predisposed to be deeply invested in the existence of the police. A city council with, I think, really no exception, a city council is going to be fundamentally devoted to sustaining its police force. Now, again, you might have some members of city council that look the part and sound the part and are militantly against so-called police brutality. They're militantly condemning anti-black police violence. You have that all over the country, right? You have members of city councils, sometimes whole city councils that do that stuff, right? They make those pronouncements, right? They make those grandstands. Here's the problem. They're pro-police. They're in favor of the existence of the police. They condemn what the police do at the same time that they support the existence of that very organization. They condemn how the police kill. They condemn how the police brutalize. They condemn how the police target black people. And at the same time, they support and will go to the ground defending the existence of the police. This is what we're talking about in the early part of our conversation when we say counterinsurgency. This is a system. This is an infrastructure of counterinsurgency. And the problem is this, Glenn. Way too often when we have people who we see as friendly city council members making those grandstands and condemning anti-black police violence, condemning so-called police brutality, you know, saying the names of Breonna Taylor, saying the names of Philando Castile, saying the name of George Floyd, so forth and so on, right? Way too many folks have a tendency to, to be seduced by that and to think that, you know what, I'm going to throw in with these folks on city council because they have my interest at heart. Well, there's a limit to that position because to the extent that the city council will still refuse to imagine a city or a neighborhood or a place that is not dependent entirely on the asymmetrical war-making apparatus of the police, then you've hit your limit. And this is what is preemptive about the entire structure of city council-based reform, police reform that, that we're going through. So that's really critical. And the defunding piece that you're talking about, defunding the police means a lot of different things right now. And this is another thing that we have to have a way more rigorous and sharp and unforgiving analysis of what is going on when folks advocate defunding the police. Because, for example, there are some colleges and universities that are kind of appropriating the notion of defunding the police. What they're really doing is, is they're just kind of dissipating that funding into other parts of university administration that still service the function of policing. So there'll be a nominal shift of budget, and what they're really doing is reinforcing, in some cases, increasing the capacity 
of the university or the college to police its students, to police the surrounding communities. So unless defunding the police is tied into a people's control of redistribution, right, unless there is a redistribution of infrastructure that services people in a decriminalizing way, in a manner that services historically targeted police and criminalized people, then it really it's not worth even entertaining. Because then what you're talking about is a kind of bureaucratic accounting magic under the guise of defunding. So we got to be careful with this defunding thing. Defunding is a pretty flexible word. And so defunding as an open-ended demand actually plays into the hands of those who would co-opt and sidetrack the movement. Yeah, Glenn, I'll say this. My book just came out two weeks ago. It's called White Reconstruction. So a shameless plug, but this is the argument that I'm making in that book. The argument I'm making in that book is that all these patterns of diversity-oriented, reformist-oriented, anti-racist-oriented reform, and I'm talking about reformist reforms. I'm not talking about the kinds of reform that create room for abolitionists and revolutionary struggle. I'm talking about reformist reforms, the types of reform that are invested in reproducing these systems of state violence. All these liberal, progressive, and sometimes conservative racial reforms of the last ongoing half-century, since the formal abolition of Jim Crow apartheid in the United States. That entire body of racial and gender and diversity-oriented reforms is actually expanding the scope of the asymmetrical domestic war against targeted criminalized populations. It is responsible for the rise of the prison industrial complex, the form of carceral domestic war that people call mass incarceration wrongly because it's not mass incarceration. It is targeted incarceration. Right? We know who is being targeted by incarceration. It's not the masses. It's specific populations. But reforms are responsible for that. When we talk about what is happening across the span of institutions, what we see is that the reforms that have opened up, for example, bureaucratic administrative personnel to better diversity so that the photo ops of who is in charge of these institutions looks more like the United Nations than it does the Ku Klux Klan, what tends to get lost is how that very expansion of diversity of personnel is actually a reinforcement, if not an amplification, of the mission of those institutions. And I'm talking about whether it's the board of a corporation that is destroying the environment and recolonizing Western Africa for oil, whether it's that, whether it's a Silicon Valley nonprofit organization that is in cahoots with public policymakers that want to essentially gentrify and recolonize parts of the city, whatever it might be, what you see is that there are all these reforms these racial reforms that actually lend to the capacity, the flexibility, and the reproduction of these structures that are asymmetrically destroying communities and people. That's what we're talking about. And that's what we have to be careful about in this moment in which people are challenging police violence and, in many cases, are actually beginning to question the very existence of the police. We've got to challenge the way in which that is being domesticated and pulled back into reformist ideology and reformist dogma. There are so many opportunities for those of us that are connected to organizations and kind of news apparatuses like Black Agenda Report to draw connection with immediate and surrounding communities of like-minded people to build analysis, to build community, even under the most difficult circumstances like the ones we are in now. Those of us who are capable of doing it should be right away connecting ourselves to mutual aid efforts, for example. There are so many different mutual aid, and I'm talking about abolitionist, radical mutual aid organizations all over the United States such that almost anybody who is hearing this or reading this will probably be able to draw a connection to a mutual aid effort within 10 or 15 minutes of where they live. Most of you will be able to do that. Do it. Do it. Because that's the kind of connection and analysis and community I'm talking about. That's where this stuff grows. We've got to do that. And the last thing I'll say, Glenn, 
because I've been saying that in every venue I've been speaking in the last three or four months. For folks who have not started doing this, we have got to think seriously, collectively, in an accountable way, in a critical way, in a responsible way, with, I mean responsible to each other anyways, about self-defense. These Proud Boys, these Boogaloo folks, these nationalists, I mean, right-wing white nationalists in particular, they are not messing around. We have to be thinking about different forms of collective self-defense. We need to draw from the lessons and the traditions and the histories of self-defense, particularly that have been demonstrated by black people and black communities in this hemisphere over the last several centuries. We need to do that. Some of us need to go ahead and figure out some fluency in legally possessing firearms and knowing how to use them and knowing how to defend ourselves with them. Others of us who are not comfortable with that need to think about other forms of self-defense, whether it's martial arts, whether it's drawing tighter connections within your community so that if there is trouble and if there is danger, you have a plan as far as how to protect each other, how to look out for each other. We have to know how to feed each other if it comes down to that because it's already at that state now in many places. We've got to be talking in a dynamic and creative and collective way about self-defense right now. It's not too late, but my fear is that it will be too late by the time too many people realize how necessary self-defense is. So we've got to be talking about self-defense, Glenn. That was Professor Dylan Rodriguez, speaking from the University of California at Riverside. Rodriguez is author of the new book, White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare and the Logics of Genocide. Black people are at the bottom of the social and economic rung in both North and South America. Jomira Salas, a doctoral candidate in sociology at Rutgers University, has written an article that argues on the different ways that blackness is experienced in Latin America versus the United States. Salas's focus is Latina black girls. I think a lot of people, like both the public and scholarship, is sort of centered around this idea that like racism and specifically anti-black racism is an American invention. <laughs> and so a lot of times there's sort of this conversation around like, what happens when you come to the United States? Do you suddenly realize you're black? And one of the that I talk about in my work is that, you know, anti-black racism is not an American invention. There's anti-black racism in the Dominican Republic and Mexico and Colombia. And so young people are experiencing this anti-black racism all the time. You know, they experience it before they get to the United States if they migrate, and also after. But one of the things that I'm interested in is sort of how they come to name and articulate that Black experience, right? Because a lot of times they may experience it, so they know what it's like to sort of have comments made about your hair or your skin color. They know that most of the poor people in their countries are Black, right? They know that there's discrimination, and of course, in housing and in, in jobs and stuff. But they may not have sort of the language that exists here in the United States. And so I'm interested in, in that sort of coming to understand and name themselves as, as Black people, as young Black girls, as something that happens in high school. Well, so tell us about the different ways that they experience anti-Blackness and what opportunities there are to express themselves Yes, of course. So I'm interested in sort of how these identities are formed in the home, in the school, and of course, in after school programs, right? And so one of the things that I've noticed is that Black girls, and specifically Afro-Latina girls who are growing up in Afro-Latina households, they experience what 
is called sort of mestizaje, which is really this idea that exists in Latin America, a product of colonization, of course, and racism about Latinos, Latin Americans being a mix of all three, right? A, a perfect mix, quote unquote, of black, white, and indigenous, right? The issue with mestizaje, of course, is that it's not a mix, one, and that it's hierarchical. And so the whole purpose of mestizaje is not to be mixed, it's really to erase the blackness and to get closer to whiteness. And so that is something that a lot of us that grew up in Latinx households, even even those of us who are black, can relate to and connect to as something that we heard growing up. So things like mejorar la raza, right? So, you know, you have to marry someone whiter than you in order to improve the race. And so those sort of routine anti-Black experiences, I argue, are very common to the experience of Black Latina girls. But then they're sort of heightened and cemented in schools because, as we know, of course, sites of anti Dumas calls it sites of anti-Black suffering for Black youth. Um, and so we, of course, we know all of the research, the stories that are out there about the punishment of Black girls in schools, right? The curriculum, the lack of culturally affirming curriculum in schools, the funding and the unequal funding, right? So these Black girls are also sort of having these ideas about mestizaje and the erasure of Blackness sort of cemented in schools. And so then I argue that they search and they find basis of affirmation elsewhere, right? So um, after school programs, I think is one of those places. And also, of course, increasingly social media. And of course, the Black Lives Matter movement has had a very high profile in the last five years. And it, of course, is led by Black women. And Black women and girls, too. You know, I, I think Black girls have been at the forefront of the movement for Black Lives since it started. I mean, I'm thinking about Rachel Jantel, who was also an Afro-Latina, although a lot of people don't know that, who was the person who was talking on the phone with Trayvon Martin when he was fatally shot and killed by Mark Zimmerman, right? And so Black girls have always sort of been at the forefront of the movement, and they continue to do it, right? Whether it's sort of on the streets, right? So protesting right now, uh, as we see a lot of young people, but also in ways that may be less visible, but still really important. So, for example, I argue that like black girls challenge disciplinary policies in schools that are anti-black and anti-girl. So, for example, dress codes policies. And so they're doing their daily routines, right? They're always challenging and reimagining a world that affirms people and, and black women and girls in particular. And you speak of these folks who are setting up what you call third spaces where mm -hmm. students and adults get together and combine their experiences to create a different kind of learning environment. Exactly. Yes. And this is really important because, you know, a lot of research on Black youth uh, centers either on their experiences in schools or on sort of their contacts with the criminal justice system. And actually, community-based educational spaces are critical for the development of young people. You know, young people of color are more likely to attend after-school programs than other youth, so they're coming in and out of these spaces. And I argue that because they're sort of located outside of the school and the home, they're really able to sort of in, have the flexibility, the informality, to build the kinds of relationships with young people that allow them to feel affirmed sort of through different lenses. Well, how many examples of these kinds of spaces have you found? 
there's some research out there, of course. There's like Gutierrez, Chris Gutierrez, and other people that are looking at the third spaces as sort of after-school programs that are outside, again, of school and the home. But there's an important thing to note here, which is that not all after-school programs are affirmative and liberatory spaces. Bianca Baldridge writes uh, really important work about how actually some of the school programs are sort of following schools and really becoming spaces of discipline and punishment for black youth, neoliberal spaces. But there are some, and of course, I don't have the total number of them, but I have come in contact with some after school programs that do try really hard to be spaces of healing and community for black youth. Here in New York City, one of the places that I work with is the Sadie Nash Leadership Project. And so this is a space that's really with, by, and for young women of color and gender expansive youth. So those are the spaces that I I argue really help Black girls and Afro-Latina girls specifically see themselves as age change. Well, it would seem that more of that kind of work is needed because of the constant invisibilizing, as you put it, of Black Latinidad in the schools. Yes. Exactly. And of course, this has important implications for things like the census. So one of the things that I write about and that I'm interested in, along with the Afro-Latino Forum and the late Miriam Jimenez-Soman, cited in Ciclores, and a bunch of other scholars, is this question around Black Latinx identity. Because the way in which we sort of think about Latinos are a sort of its own racial group. And what we argue is that when we think about them that way, we're really invisibilizing the differences within this really diverse group of people, right, who move through the world differently based on their racial identity. And so, of course, it has implications for the census. It has implications for interventions, right? So if we don't notice that Latinx people are sort of, of course, yes, more likely, as, as we've seen, to get COVID. But if we don't see which of those Latinos are the ones that are getting COVID. So some work out there points to the fact that it's in, like, majority Caribbean neighborhoods. Well, Caribbean Latinos tend to be Black. They're more likely to be Afro-descendant. And so it's really important for us to be able to get the accurate data in order, in order for us to be able to have accurate and appropriate interventions. Tell us specifically about the experiences of young Black people from the Dominican Republic, a nation that is overwhelmingly Afro-descended, but seems to define its national character in opposition to its very Black neighbor, Haiti. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, the Dominican Republic, it's sort of the tech case of this and and really of the power that wielded against Latin American countries and of course DR in particular. Of course, in the Dominican Republic, the national identity has been crafted as being against Haiti, but Dominican and Haitian communities here in the United States, a lot of camaraderie and community building, right? And so, for example, in Washington Heights, there was an incident when some Dominicans who were also Black were sort of harassing these two African-American boys. And, you know, it went viral. And the next day, there was a huge outpouring of the Dominican and Haitian community in Washington Heights together who came together and said, no, like, we recognize that our issues are tied and we refuse to perpetuate the myths that have constricted our relationship as people who face the same brunt of anti-Black racism. 
And so there's a possibility that the anti-Haitian fervor in the Dominican Republic could be tempered by Dominicans who are in the United States and developing a different kind of relationship to their own blackness. Of course, of course. It could be tempered by Dominicans in the United States and by Dominicans in the republics. And it's important for those relationships to be built, for Dominicans to recognize our role in that, of course. I argue that it has a really important potential for coalition, especially in the movement for Black lives. And give us some examples of those potentialities becoming real. Yes, you sort of see it in young people's participation in protests. So like the example I mentioned earlier about Dominicans and Haitians, these were majority young people in Washington Heights. If you look at the pictures, it looks like 20-year-olds, maybe high school students together. And so you see those coalitions, see them talking to their parents about Blackness. And one of the really great things about sort of studying also how Afro-Latina girls talk about their Black identity in social media is seeing their storytelling about how they're talking to their parents about growing up Black, right? So there's also an intergenerational piece around that. And of course, the second piece is that that the struggle is transnational. And so just like the movement for Black lives is important here, we're seeing Black Dominicans in the Dominican Republic also push for the movement for Black lives on the island. That was doctoral candidate Jomira Salas speaking from Rutgers University. In terms of the law, Africa may be the continent most hostile to queer folks. 30 of its nations have laws against homosexuality. Wunpini Fatimata Mohammed is a professor of journalism and mass communications at the University of Georgia. Dr. Mohammed is author of an article in the Rutledge Handbook of Queer African Studies titled Deconstructing Homosexuality in Ghana. Homosexuality or queerness discussions in Africa have been very contentious. And as you read in the book chapter, it's interesting to see the history of this sort of criminalization of queerness in Africa. And I talk about the way that that is connected to colonization. And I make the argument that, because it's not as simplistic as as we like to think, so I make the argument that in many um, post-colonial African nations, homosexuality is criminalized. And the reason for the criminalization is connected to uh, leftover colonial laws from, you know, European colonization. So uh, when I was doing research for this study, one of the things that I noticed was that in many of the countries where homosexuality was criminalized, the law was sort of similar. So um, the language that was used in the Ghanaian constitution around homosexuality is similar to the language that is used in the constitutions of other Anglophone or English-speaking African countries, and also similar to what was in the Indian sort of context. And so they called it the Indian Penal Code, uh, which you'll see in in many of these countries. And these are what some might call the legacies of uh, British colonization and how that has sort of impacted these various communities. And interestingly, across the world, this criminalization of queerness is not just something that we can attribute to colonization because in some societies that were homophobic, these colonial laws sort of worked in tandem with uh, homophobic societal um, norms 
to entrench um, homophobia within these societies. And in societies where homosexuality was part of the norm or there wasn't homophobia, these colonial laws sort of introduced the legitimization of homophobia in these communities. So it's really complicated. And in across the world or across various countries where there was or there has been some sort of colonization, you will see an influence of that. And Jamaica is one of the places in the Caribbean where we've seen a lot of conversations around queerness and how violent the manifestations of homophobia in this context is. And it's also very similar to the way that we see it in many places across the world, uh, Africa included. Yes, certainly one can show that anti-homosexual laws are leftovers of colonialism. You can trace the history of those laws. And yet we have voices in Africa saying that homosexuality itself was brought into Africa by the Europeans. And then we all know, of course, that European and American evangelicals have whipped up anti-homosexual passions in Africa. So this origin question is still being debated. Yes. So the origin question is still being debated because there are specific narratives that have been pushed to the periphery. So narratives that do not support dominant ideology, which is that homophobia is a legitimate and acceptable sort of stance or behavior. And the reason why we keep seeing that is because of the ways these societies have evolved and have intertwined with religions. So you'll see that in societies, in many African societies, and I'll use Ghana as an example, where um, homosexuality is condemned, there's always discourses that connect homophobia or homosexuality to deviance and then they connect them to religious doctrines. So they'll connect them to Christianity and Islam, and Christianity is actually the dominant religion in Ghana. And so constantly you're hearing preachers talk about uh, homosexuality and how it's a sin. And it's really interesting to see how that intertwines with, with um, Ghanaian cultures and Ghanaian religions. So when we talk about the origins, I would say that the narratives that demonstrate the com- complexities of uh, non-conforming sexualities in pre-colonial and even colonial Africa are not exactly spoken about. And I'll say there are several reasons that that might be the case. So, for example, some scholars, so I'm going to use an example of, you know, Western scholars, anthropologists who go to Africa to do research. So a lot of the time, these anthropologists would go to African communities to do research. And one of the things that happened then and still happens now is that if there isn't trust between the researcher and the community, they are not going to be able to learn the intricacies of of sexuality in these communities. And so many researchers would go conduct research and not learn the true nature of sexuality in these communities. And so, you know, they went on pushing the narrative that queerness was an African. But recently we are seeing emerging scholarship that sort of debunks this notion And uh, I'll say that you'll find scholarship on queerness in northern Nigeria, 
scholarship about uh, female husbands in um, East Africa and even scholarship about the way that queerness sort of manifested in, in African traditional religions in, in southern Burkina Faso and, and northern Ghana among the Dagara people. So a lot of the time when we try to understand what queerness looks like within the African context, the reason why we are unable to parse out these narratives is because a lot of the time we are using Western or Eurocentric lens to understand what happened within these various communities. And even when we talk about the language, uh, in many Ghanaian languages, we don't even have gendered pronouns. So for me, in my, I speak Dagwami, in my community, we don't have he, him pronouns are not, or she, her pronouns are not, they don't exist. They are gender neutral. We have we only have one gender neutral pronoun to refer to people. And it's even interesting how that has affected the way some of us spoke English. Because I, I know that a lot of the time you'll see Ghanaian, a Ghanaian refer to a woman as a, a he or a man as a she, just because we don't really have these gender pronouns in our, our languages. And so it takes a little bit of adjusting when we, we speak them, um, when we talk about gender in English. So um, the reason why we still have people talk about the un-Africanness of homosexuality is because narratives that highlight um, the complexities of sexuality in Africa have been pushed to the periphery. And that has been done across various institutions on the continent. So the legal institution, educational institutions, um, religious institutions are all saying that homosexuality or queerness is an African. And so as they repeat this in the public sphere over and over again, that becomes accepted as the norm. But when you go and dig deeper into um, tradition and speak to the people who know the histories of these communities, it is a different case altogether. And it's interesting also to think about the way the role that Abrahamic religions like Christianity and Islam have have demonized queerness and the opportunity that African traditional religions present us with to understand the histories of sexualities in Africa, the histories of the constructions of gender, and the histories of the constructions of um, romantic and intimate relationships between people. I find it quite interesting what you say about Ghana, that homosexuality in Ghana is basically a reference to same-sex desires between men, but there is a kind of tolerance of lesbianism. Yes, so the the thing with queerness in Ghana is that a lot of the time when we talk about homosexuality, it's always focused on men, you know, men in same-sex relationships. And there seems to be what looks like a tolerance of lesbianism. But the reason why it looks like there is a tolerance of lesbianism is the way that lesbians are fetishized in Ghanaian society and also in popular culture and the way that they think lesbianism or lesbians are not threatening or do not threaten um, the patriarchy, the way that homosexuals threaten the patriarchy. Because uh, manliness and manhood and being a man as tied to the patriarchy are defined by a set of rules. And men who are attracted to other men are by extension deviating from these norms and are not necessarily um, valued in, in these societies. So I would say that there is still lesbophobia in Ghana, but a lot of the time the news reports that we get um, have focused on um, homosexuality between men and how, you know, it threatens the status quo. But actually, recently, there was, I think, a video or a photo circulating the internet of two women in Ghana who 
had married, and it became a big deal, a huge case, um, because it, you know, a lot of Ghanaians thought that it was immoral, and there were so many, they were getting a lot of threats, and there were so many things going around to a point where it was said that, you know, um, the the state was trying to get them arrested and and you know have them face the law and all of that. So the fact that lesbianism is fetishized does not necessarily mean that um, lesbians do not experience queerphobia. It's just that the the experiences of queerphobia are, in a way, they may be different from the experiences of of men as far as homophobia is concerned. It's really interesting that lesbianism in, in Ghana is sort of seen as tolerated, but I don't believe it is necessarily tolerated because in Ghana we have uh, female athletes or female footballers, soccer players, and their femininities are constantly questioned and their gender identities are constantly questioned and narratives around their romantic relationships or even their individual public presentations of themselves are constantly questioned because people believe that they may be lesbians and they may be pushing narratives that are immoral and teaching younger children to grow up to be immoral like them. So there still exists a queerphobia targeted at lesbians, but we have seen most of the time that um, queerphobia targeted at men or homosexuals has dominated the narrative around queerness in Ghana. And a lot of the time when we hear about physical violence enacted on on queer people uh, within the country, you'll see that, especially with the news reports that I examined, it was specifically targeted at men. On an African scale, ranging from acceptance or tolerance, and I know those are heavily weighted words, acceptance Mm -hmm. or tolerance and severe repression, where does Ghana fall? As far as queerness is concerned? Yes. Yes, I would say repression. I don't think Ghana is tolerant. I mean, some Ghanaians might think that Ghana is tolerant compared to other African countries like Nigeria, as far as, um, you know, queerness is concerned. But I believe that Ghana is not tolerant at all of, of people of non-conforming sexualities. And we have seen that over and over again in the way that the people in power have framed narratives around um, queerness in Ghana. So there was one woman who was the Minister for Gender and Social Protection in Ghana in the past term. I think from 2012 to 2016, she was the Minister for Gender and Social Protection. And before she became Minister, she was known to be a human rights activist and she was known to support gay rights. And her support of gay rights have always come up whenever her work as a public servant is sort of scrutinized. So even the people in power who have the power to speak up about gay rights are not are still not comfortable doing so. A lot of the queer people who are openly queer are usually openly queer on spaces that seem to be more accepting, and these are spaces that are not even widely used in mainstream um, Ghanaian spaces. So, for example, on Twitter, you'll find that there are queer Ghanaians there, and many of them do not even necessarily use their actual names because they still have to mask their identities to ensure that they are not physically attacked or they don't get into into trouble. And I still believe that there is a lot of repression because of the way that individual bodies are sort of scrutinized, people's bodies are scrutinized in, in various ways. And in Ghana's public sphere, you go to the churches and pastors are preaching about how queer people are going to hell. You go to the parliament and you hear the speaker of parliament saying that they have to 
find a way to, you know, um, deal with the homosexuality problem. You go to educational, higher educational institutions and you hear people in high positions of power saying that, you know, homosexuality is a kanka and all of that. So I think that it's still a big problem in Ghana. And people, sometimes, even if you speak up and say you support gay rights, you are immediately tagged as someone who might be gay, and that could actually put you in some sort of trouble. So for a lot of people who are able to speak up about queer rights in Ghana, sometimes you have to have some sort of social and cultural capital that in a way can shield you from from the backlash that will come from making such pronouncements. And for queer people, it's not something to take lightly because it's literally about life and death. So I believe that Ghana is very repressive as far as queer rights are concerned and has gotten even more so in the last few years. And what role has Islam played in Africa in the battle for queer rights? Interestingly, I'm going to use South Africa as an example. So Imam Mohsen Hendricks, who is a South African imam who has supported gay rights and has, you know, even performed gay marriage ceremonies, has sort of pushed or changed narratives around queerness and Islam. And he's also gotten a lot of uh, pushback from conservative Muslims about his stance on that. And interestingly, from my observations, I'm going to use Ghana. And to give context, Ghana is about 70% Christian, majority Christian, and then a tiny population of, of the country is Muslim. So most of the north of Ghana is Muslim, maybe like 10, 15% of the population. And uh, what I have found is that until recently, you rarely had Islamic leaders speak up about the issue. Because as you said before, homophobic rhetoric is supported by evangelical churches here in the U.S. who send money or funding to African countries, especially churches, to sort of push policy around queerness or sexuality on the continent. And we don't really see that I'm using Ghana as a, as a context because I don't know about the other African countries. We don't really see that in the Muslim realm within the country, but we are beginning to see some Muslim leaders sort of work with Christian leaders to support this anti-gay stance that, that has been pushed uh, in the public sphere for some time now. And one of the things that I've also noticed with the differences is the ways in which And I'm going to speak as a Muslim. Uh, I'm going to speak as a Muslim in my experiences in the mosque versus my experiences being in a mission, you know, going to mission schools as a a younger person or as a child. Um, So one of the things that I've noticed about the stance of a lot of imams with this question of homosexuality or queerness years and years ago, it was not part of the conversation. Not once did I ever hear in the mosque an imam talk about homosexuality or queerness or condemn it. But recently we are seeing that more and more imams are beginning to speak up because they don't want to seem like they are endorsing uh, homosexuality within the country. And it's because of the pressures that they are getting from their Christian counterparts to do so. And interestingly, the pushback that we are getting from the imams has come from the south of the country. Like in the article, it was the Takwadi chief imam who was condemning um, homosexuality. Um, in the north, which is the majority number of uh, Muslims in the country, 
I haven't seen much of that. It's possible that it's beginning to show in, in um, public discourses within the, the, the region, but I haven't seen it compared to what has happened in the South. And I think the Southern thing is also because, you know, that is where the seat of government is, Accra is there, and that is the place that often makes the news. So I guess that might also be the reason for that. So one of the things that I would like to add is that there needs to be coalition building in the Ghanaian feminist movement in order to push for queer rights in the country because what we are currently seeing is that there are a lot of feminist groups that do not take a stance to support gay rights in the country for fear of being ostracized by the mainstream or for fear of being ostracized by the state. And so I believe that if more and more groups work together and also work with the already existing uh, groups that are addressing gay rights in Ghana, like LGBT Rights Ghana, Drama Queens Ghana, and a few others to help support gay rights, it would really move us forward as far as the conversation is concerned. And it's also important that uh, we begin as feminist activists to hold our leaders accountable, especially on their stance around human rights and gay rights in the country, because you'll see that in most of the manifestos of the political parties, not much is being said about that. And if anything is being said, it is that they are going to legalize homophobia in the country. And so that is something that I would like to see done currently in Ghana. That was Wunpini Fatimata Mohammed speaking from the University of Georgia. The nation's best-known political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, has some thoughts on the elections. He doesn't trust the polls. In a few days, the roiling elections of 2020 will be history. But what kind of history will it be? No one really knows. For certainty, it's but a feeling, not a fact. But what about the polls, you ask? Polls are polls. And 2016 had the same sense of certainty and somewhat similar polls. Thanks in part to the then director of the FBI, James Comey. A news release made just days before the election sent Hillary Clinton's campaign into a tailspin. She crashed and burned, leading to the unexpected rise of Trump. Given the speed and the power of social media, anything can happen in the blink of an eye. So the stage is not yet set. Tomorrow's script is not yet written. People vote, yes. But it ain't the voting that matters. It's the counting, especially in a so-called democracy. For tomorrow belongs to those who fight the hardest today. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.